0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Yash, your host for the New Books Network. Today we will talk to Dr. Yamini Narayanan about a new book, Mother Cow, Mother India, A Multi-Species Politics of Dairy in India, which was published by Stanford University Press in 2023. Thank you so much, Yamini, for joining me today for this conversation.
0: Thank you so much for inviting me, Yash.
1: <laughs> Starting with the first question, you mentioned this as an anecdote in the introduction to the book, but for the audience, could you share the intellectual journey that led you to become interested in the study of daily politics in India?
0: Um, thank you so much for this question. I actually really appreciate the opportunity to reflect on my arrival, as it were, to critical animal studies, but more specifically, uh, to writing a book on cow protection politics as a Brahmin woman. Um, you know, so because that automatically raises so many questions about what my motivations are in in coming to this space. So I really appreciate this question. I do reflect on a lot of uh, moments of arrival, as it were. There is a lot of moments of arrival when we. Um, enter into any space which is fraught uh, with identity politics, advocacy, resistance, etc. vulnerability. So there's many, many moments of arrival, and I do discuss a few of them in my book. But what I want to focus on today is one that I didn't really discuss in my book, but nonetheless made a really profound impact on me, right? Um, And this was about 10 years ago and a friend posted on uh, Facebook or something about tortured bunnies and cosmetic testing. And it appeared on my Facebook feed. This was not the first time that she had posted on animal cruelty. She was at that time the only person in the collective that had that was posting on animal cruelty at all. But it was the first time that I really froze in shock, right? So the video showed a rabbit with a large patch of a first crap raw, uh burnt, huddled in a, in a in a in a in a shoebox of a wire cage, the terror in the rabbit's eyes, wide eyes, and and an attempt to, you know, um and avoid the camera's gaze was unmistakable. She had nothing in that star cage. There was not even a water of bowl behind which she could cower. And that, that, that complete exposure to the risk of even being seen, leave alone everything else that she had endured, was, was really visceral. And shortly after that, I actually witnessed one of Peter's agonizing exposés. I mean, PETA is very problematic in the animal advocacy space because a lot of their uh, approaches to advocacy are quite, quite controversial, but they also generate some really um, visceral content of normalized violence, violence against animals, which is extremely normalized in production spaces, right? And in this case, it was again a rabbit video. It was focused on uh, the ripping of rabbit fur from screaming live rabbits, Uh in, um, in, a, in, a, in a Chinese Angora farm. And I was it came up and I was I wept openly in this you know busy central Melbourne cafe where I was sitting and writing at that time. And growing up I had lived with 13 rabbits as a child. I knew them to be cheeky personalities. But I had never I had not known. My family did not know, and we had lived with rabbits for years. We did not know that rabbits were capable of producing that kind of scream. We had never heard that after, you know, more than a decade of living with rabbits. We had never heard that kind of scream. We had we also never know of a side of human terror and vulnerability either. We also don't know the many ways in which humans can, can, can scream, for example. And we shouldn't know, you know, because no living being should be put through these things. But that was a really visceral moment. And that, in many ways, was also a beginning of a very conscious exploration into seeking out the realities of animals in production spaces specifically, right? Because as a vegetarian at that time, born and raised, I had not even remotely considered that any product that I consume derived from animal products, whether it was, you know, ghee or butter or milk or leather or fur, any of these things could be in any way entangled with violence because, you know, you just assume, um, you know, because we have these frames of thinking about what vegetarianism means, what non-vegetarianism means with reference to uh, specifically with reference to violence against animals. And because the animals are not immediately or viscerally or visibly slaughtered, we necessarily don't connect these two things. And I hadn't. Right. So this was this was a very conscious exploration. And I pretty much turned my back on my previous research research overnight. So pro- previously, I used to work on feminist urban planning and gender sensitive urban planning in Indian cities, um, really important topic. But when I was confronted so viscerally and so unexpectedly with issues of um, animal violence, I I found it difficult to, to to focus anymore on anything other than the animal world. And I actually walked away from this research Overnight, I didn't have an animal bibliography. I didn't know who the big names in animal studies were. I didn't even know there was an animal studies. I didn't know who else studied animals. I had no idea. All I knew that was that I had to sort of go in there. So I think I would, um, as a side note, I would always encourage researchers to truly follow what their intuition and gut tells them because it could possibly lead to somewhere where they really need to go. But my foray into cow protection politics and studying the 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 politics of uh, the, you know, cows and national identities in India, that was actually much more of a mundane decision. So I started to make contact with a lot of animal, animal groups, like animal rescue groups in India. And one of them was the Vishaka Society for the Protection and Care of Animals based in Vishakhapatnam. And Pradeep Kumarnath founded this organization, he's now a really dear friend. Uh, but at that time, he was one of those people that answered my questions most patiently—really ignorant, basic questions. Because while we live in such vivid, multi-species environments in India, and while we are constantly located against very multi-species landscapes, they are so ubiquitous that they are almost unseen. Right? We, we, and and it's also our. Um, anthropocentrism, which is not necessarily always a bad thing, but it does kind of politically in many ways not make animal lives and animal bodies visible, like other than human animal bodies and animal lives visible. So my level of ignorance was, was quite something. And he was very patient in answering these questions. I went and visited him in Vishakapatnam. And I talk about this in at length in my book, because we spoke for hours. And he told me about this huge landscape of of animals that he had worked with in, you know, the 30, 40 years that he had been in the field and his heartbreak and his traumas and his reliving. The aftershocks of animal activism is something that a lot of people have. I think Naisar Gidave has done some fantastic work on it in the US. Patrice Jones actually has a book called Aftershock. uh, about the specific sort of traumas that come from witnessing animal realities. And he was talking at length about, you know, um, cobras that he had rescued. He had talked about uh, emus that he had rescued. He had talked about a whole spectrum of species. And I was absolutely confused about where do I go? Because every story he told me was, was just profoundly difficult to even hear. Right. I mean, I wasn't the one who had lived any of these things, but it was really difficult to even hear what he was telling me. And I spent a lot of time with him. And in the end, I said, I don't know what to do. You tell me what to do. I said, from an animal, you know, you're an activist in the field. um, What would you have me do? What would you think? And he actually said he was said focus on the cows, because on the one hand, this was 2014. um, The Modi government had just come to power. There was a rise in cow vigilantism he said suddenly these people are doing something that we have always been doing we were not we were not unaware of the way that animals were um you know, jammed into trucks and and sent to slaughterhouses. We weren't unaware of any of these things. We have been trying to call attention from a very specific animal rights perspective, right? Which has got nothing to do with the Hindu, right? Uh, so we have been trying to call attention for a number of animals for years. And we know about so many things that are happening undercover um, illegally, but also profound acts of violence, which I think would, would, would really shake up the public if we knew, because I think a lot of the times we just don't know. So but he said suddenly this is come this is in the public space. Um, you know they are adopting some of our techniques because animal rights activists have been trying to hold trucks for a while as well uh, because the cows are the one animal for whom it is possible actually to legislatively seek some type of protection. They're not unaware of how problematic it is. Uh, but you know, you know animal activists always say we have such small wins for the animals. So why can't we take what's available? So they will, they've been de- deploying these tactics for a while, of course, on a much smaller scale. Um, but they're like, suddenly the Hindu right is doing it. And suddenly we are becoming identified with the Hindu right. Like So they had nothing to do within Hindu authoritarian politics. They had nothing to do with any type of nation making. They had nothing to do with any type of exclusionary politics per se. Um, but suddenly there was this collapse of animal activists and workers of the Hindu right, right which is which is actually quite a confronting place to be in if you think about it um because you know we wouldn't just so easily collapse human rights activists per se with with an authoritarian um, state so um, so and, and and this was always a difficult ground for me to tread as well like you know, trying to parse out their motivations and trying to see where these sorts of tensions collapsed and where they did diverge. So he said, we don't, I don't know what to make of what's going on. None of us know what to make of what's going on. And Naisa Dev Dave talks about this in her work as well, about, you know, how activists in general, but animal activists in particular are responding and working in a state of emergency all the time. And, you know, they don't necessarily have the kind of luxury of time, of research, of reflection that we academics do. And when he said, I don't know what to make of this, he was actually being real and being honest he said i don't know what to make of this is this his 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 core concern was is this good for the animals like the way that you know political life has taken over this debate is there anything in this for the animals um so he said focus on the animals so and when I said, fine, great, I'll do it, right? That's what I'll do. And uh, and he was fantastic in offering me support. And then, of course, you know, um, connected me with animal groups across India. So it really became a pan-Indian ex- exploration. Um, and that, I think, was also something that became distinctive about my research because it wasn't just, there was no way of racializing a pan-Indian study. If I just focused on one state, it was so easy to racialize. What was going on, and you know, say that oh, you know, people of this state or this religion or this culture are particularly responsible or specifically responsible for the way cows are treated, but everyone else is, you know, um, free of of blame or or responsibility. Uh, whereas a pan-Indian study makes it impossible to racialize the politics of dairy production, the politics politics of cow slaughter, and it also makes it impossible to racialize inhumane or humane treatment to animals, because animals have to be treated a particular way once they are in production, in any type of production space, right? It's just the cold economic realities of animal production. So um, it was a very mundane decision, specifically to to, to um, focus on cows. So I think my, my approach has always been either I'm guided intuitively by animals or I'm guided by animal activists, the ones that genuinely in my view, work with grace and honesty and integrity for, you know, animal liberation of some type. So 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 that was that was my foray into into looking into animals specifically. And then eventually, as I started to get deeper and deeper into it, it of course became very important to justify, to explain my own motivations in working on animals because they were like, oh, well, as a Brahmin woman, you are clearly having a particular agenda here. And that was never the case because as a Brahmin woman, as a Brahmin growing up in India, we had never once been um, told to be, you know, um, show any kind of responsibility or care for any type of animal, whether it was cows or any other, because I think in more generally in human society, uh, animals remain unseen. So um, so yeah, so this was my foray into the space.
1: Thank you for that response. And that's such a fascinating overview of a lot of themes we're going to go into in a little more detail after this. But I think that gives yeah. us a good segue into the next question. So in your introduction, there's this striking passage where you write, and I quote, it may seem gross, grossly incongruous, even offensive to focus on cows and buffaloes, when horrific violence against racialized and casteized humans is being perpetrated in the name of protecting cows, unquote. In such a context, what do you think we can learn from your book in in specific, as well as the broader tradition of multi-species politics?
0: This is an excellent question, because it has gone right into the heart of the core issue in identity politics, right? But also more broadly and pervasively, we are getting right to the heart of what we don't sort of um, engage in identity politics, which is anthropocentrism. We We closely engage racism, we closely engage sexism, we closely engage ableism, uh, we closely engage a whole spectrum of uh, very critical identities as we see relevant in the humanist realm. But one thing that we negate almost completely is anthropocentrism, right? It's an ideology. It's not a fact. It's an ideology that fundamentally defines virtually every type and scale of human institutions, whether it's cultural, political, social, it is guided by the anthropocentric ideology, the belief around human exceptionalism and human supremacy that considers not only humans to be exceptional or different to animals, but it generally disregards the idea or even denies the idea that humans are animals at all, right? Out of all the complex identity categories that we engage with as I said, race, caste, um, gender, ability, our animality is one that we deny, one that we blur, or one that we actively distance ourselves from. And in denying our animality, it actually becomes possible to wield animals' animality against them, right? Because animals are Animals have a particular type of animality. We deny our our own animality, but it's also not that straightforward because as we know, uh, dehumanization or making an animal sub, uh, making a human subhuman is a core part of othering, of exclusions and of creating binaries and hierarchies uh, in general, right? But as I discuss in Mother Cow, Mother India, but also in some of the work that I've done with Kritika Srinivasan, for example, we talk about how species and I'm quoting here as an axis of social difference because species is also not just a biological category it's not a category of of just zoology per se it is actually a political category it's a category of social difference when it is a category of social difference it's also a category of identity but this has virtually never been regarded as a core part of identity politics whether it is in India or elsewhere the irony is species actually has a central role in shaping uh, the exclusions and inclusions that characterize human society, right? So in purposefully seeing animals as so vastly different from us human animals, it actually becomes possible for us, there's stakes in it for us, right? In, in, in not seeing us in a particular way, there's stakes in it. You know, it, it is possible to normatively inflict violence on animals, especially those that are used in farming, right? the type and the scale of violence, which often um, defies belief. Uh, And when this kind of violence is normalized or obscured, we are spared from having to know about it. We are spared from having to recognize it. Uh, We are spared from having to respond to violence. Normally, when violence against humans in any shape or form or category is raised and politicized and named as such, we have an obligation to respond. Right, but when we are spared from knowing, when we are spared from recognizing, or when violence is normalized as almost not violence, we are also spared from having to respond. And there's a tremendous payoff in this kind of double think and, and and in erasing uh the fact that we are animals, right? And uh, and and uh and the double think of erasing our own innermost knowing. I think we all know in some way, if we allowed ourselves to think about it, that animals used for any type of production, daring in this case suffer the kind of almost eviscerating heartbreak, grief, terror, trauma that we that we'd consider, recognize, and know to be almost unendurable and 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 un un un, un in no in no way legitimizable when members of our own species experience it, right? But anthropocentrism stratifies not only between humans and animals, it also stratifies between humans. It is actually one of the most insidious forms of social oppression, but it's not recognized as such. So so anthropocentrism stratifies between particular classifications of humans. For example, to say Brahmin, white, male, they are the preeminent humans, the humans par excellence, right? And everyone else is sort of less than human or, or different gradations of being human. So the human is not a straightforward category whatsoever. Sylvia Winter has done some fantastic work, Um, Zakia Imam Jackson, based in the US, about uh, Claire Kim. Um, It's not a straightforward category, and which is exactly why we have such breathtaking unevenness and inequality between humans. And what we need to consider is that animals are actually used as a core way of mobilizing these stratifications between animals, whether it it comes to disabilities, you know, humans being compared to animals. Um, And in the specific context of my own book, what I have tried to unveil in Mother Cow Mother India is how it's not just racism, communalism, casteism that shapes cow politics, anthropocentrism shapes cow politics as it plays out in India, right? In instrumentalizing the cow, that is specifically the lactating cow as a Hindu body, as Hindu mothering bodies, actually, to purvey the imaginary of the Hindu mother nation. Cows are, cows are weaponized. And of course, they care. Their profound connection with their, their own infants is disrupted. You know, and this is not just to fetishize cows. This is true across dairying. Um, you know, buffaloes, cows, sheep, camel. I've worked on camels. I've written about camels. I've written about buffaloes. Um, and i've seen goats and sheep absolutely freak out when you know their their kids are separated so all of these animals mammals are generally extraordinarily fierce and protective mothers right so so there is the anthropocentrism in disregarding the animal body per se but additionally in a country that that purports to be in effect a non slaughtering dairy nation there are highly vulnerable human workers some of them from the poorest of Dalit and Muslim communities who are placed in the situation of performing the incredibly risky labor of transporting cows to slaughter or performing slaughter in no less than an authoritarian far-right aspirational Hindu state. okay? So what happens in any type in, in, in dairy farming is you know, uh, and we can talk about this further um, that that slaughter is part of the car produ- car, of the dairy production continuum. In India, this is denied. In India, this goes underground. And so we have vulnerable Muslim and Dalit workers. It is very convenient that they are Muslims and, and Dalits. Uh, this is not unique of India per se. If, you know, Tim Pacharat talks about uh, in his book, uh, Every 12 Seconds, those who work in slaughtering are generally amongst the amongst the most vulnerable of that society. So in the United States, for example, they're often undocumented migrant workers, so-called illegal uh, migrant workers who can't get employment elsewhere, and so you generally have um, very vulnerable human groups that are working in slaughterhouses. Nobody wants to go and work in a slaughterhouse, right? So you have, um, listen, there's an, there's vulnerability in performing particular types of labor. This is one such labor in India. It is not just slaughtering in India. In most states, it's also criminal labor, right? So there are vulnerable bodies that are that are being used to perform. Risky, vulnerable, criminal labor that often cost them their lives, right? Because the rule of law gets taken up by, by vigilante groups. So um, anthropocentrism operates really well in negating the animal body. It also operates really well in manipulating and exploiting a whole stratified range of human bodies. And it also not, doesn't work just in exploitation. It also works in elevating. Because anthropocentrism works both in elevating as well as in demoralizing, so to speak, right? So you have the you have the 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 upper caste Hindu groups that are associated with cow protection and, um, and the lower caste, so-called lower castes and the Muslims who are implicitly the other. So you know, so you know, we have, we know from the way that women's bodies are used to other Muslims, for example, the Muslim body as the rapist, and now the Muslim body as a cow slaughterer. Right. Anthropocentrism operates very, very strongly in shaping our identity politics. And I think we need to pay more attention to it. So this is what I've tried to do in trying to bring the animal body into focus. The interesting thing here is that it overturns the debate. Okay, we can't actually just it actually blows apart the racialization of Muslims as a cow slaughterer, because it force us, forces us to confront our sort of shared human complicity in in, in examining, not just, you know, there's been the sustained focus, um, strategic focus on beef and Muslims. That's the key words. Now we are forced to look, if we are gonna actually look at what cow protection means from, a, from an animal activist point of view, from an animal rights point of view, we have to start paying attention to milk. We have to start paying attention to Hindus as well. Right, uh, because cows in India are bred for milk, not beef. Milk is a sacred commodity for Hindus. So, but but when we disrupt this narration of when we gaslight basically uh, the narrate the narrative into implicating beef and Muslims, but not dairy and Hindus, uh, it forces us actually to consider how dairy is intermittently interconnected with slaughter. Uh, India, as the largest dairy producing country, is the third largest bovine slaughtering country as well so i think it really anthropocentrism forces us to overturn these debates that's the risk though it's also a risk because it overturns the debates that have sustained our ideas of solidarity our ideas of resistance our ideas of uh, of, uh, of vulnerabilities human vulnerabilities all in the human realm so if there's a risk in actually bringing anthropocentrism into focus it's not that i was not con- inflicted myself. I, I talk about this in my book. I ask these questions, right? Like, for example, I ask, does animal liberation inevitably clash with Dalit liberation? What does animal liberation mean for cows, mean for upper caste politics and culture? Because I was really concerned, does it actually strengthen Brahminism? Does animal liberation automatically mean strengthening Brahminism? Or could it actually bring unchallenged Brahminical practices around animal exploitation into questions? Can we offer something meaningful here to Dalit politics, to animal politics? And I and I think my answer is a very definitive yes. And this is something that anthropocentrism uh, can, you know, I, I, critically examining anthropocentrism and identity politics can actually overturn and expose a lot of human hypocrisies and actually make it, uh, you know, a lot of empowered so to speak a dominant human hip- hypocrisies that operate to marginalize vulnerable humans further so it's, it's i think it's a, i think it, it it's an important critique to to bring into focus more and more strongly
1: Thank you. That's a, <clears throat> that's a really thought provoking response. And like, especially as someone who's coming in from political science, where this focus is like with its own focus on like elite behaviors and power politics, this isn't something that was particularly thought about and written about. So I think it, your insights are particularly relevant, especially even for other disciplines within the social sciences that are not thinking as clearly and as pointedly about these questions. So thank you for oh, that.
0: Thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And moving on, like, and I think it's building on to something you just mentioned, but like, there's this fundamental contradiction and it's possibly a contradiction of popular imagination and not necessarily a fact, but wherein you say that India's dairy and beef economy exist on like a quote unquote, seamless continuum. At another point mm. is, quote, there is no beef economy without dairy economy, unquote. Could you explain how this contradiction works in public imagination and how it features in your work?
0: Okay. Um, and this is this, this we're getting to the heart of why vegetarianism for example is seen as uh, generally a benign uh, non-violent form of um, of consumption you know um it's it's aligned with ahimsa a lot of religious studies scholarship nature based religious studies scholarship for example conflates ahimsa and vegetarianism together because in a vegetarian diet like for example uh, uh, with with dairy or with with egg, eggs for example that we need animal to be alive we need the female farmed animal body to be alive right because the, the continuous has to be from a from a living body it has to be continuous and eventually when the body is no longer productive that body is sent to the slaughterhouse so if you look at um any other leading dairy producing country let's take australia let's take the united states uh let's take europe let's take any actually let's take any dairy producing uh Space whatsoever, whether it is um, a leading one or not, it doesn't actually matter. The cold economics of dairy production basically mean that, and 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 it, you know, it, it proceeds in this way: you breed animals for slaughter. You you sorry, you breed animals for uh, for dairying. You impregnate them, you breed them. Uh, the males automatically get sent towards slaughter you know, as infant in, in, infant calves for veal, uh, older males for beef. They, they, so the males get constantly moved on straight away to the slaughterhouse. The females are... Uh, impregnated, uh, put through repeated pregnancies, um, separated from their calves in order to, you know, to, 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 for us to be able to take their milk. And eventually, the daily production continuum, you know, there's a, there's a prolonged period of, um, of lactation, pregnancies, et cetera, that takes anything between three to six years. And at the end of that, the daily production continuum, the cold economics, it's just an, it's just an economic reality, is that unproductive resources must be disposed of. There is no type of production, animal or otherwise, where you're going to maintain unproductive resources, put resources into maintaining unproductive resources. You're not going to do that. So unproductive resources have to be disposed of. And in any dairy producing country, the continuum eventually proceeds to the slaughterhouse. That is accepted. That is not a problem. In India, this part of the production continuum is disrupted because... Here we say animals don't go to the slaughterhouse. Animals are instead just going to be put to pasture. Uh, They're going to be sent to gaushalas. So we have a cow protecting narrative where somehow uniquely in India, we are somehow able to... um, you know, disrupt the the dairy production continuum without sending the animals to the slaughterhouse. So male or female, we don't we don't have official licensed authorized cow slaughterhouses, except in um, West Bengal or in Kerala. Um, There's a few states, but in the the main, the idea of a authorized licensed slaughterhouse, cow slaughterhouse is is um, is is one of is one of bafflement. Right. So we we don't have one. Um, So. In India, we apparently don't do that. We send the animals to gaushalas. Now, and I explained this in one of my, in in my gaushala chapter, how even gaushalas cannot actually cope with this influx of animals that are discarded by the dairy industry and how gaushalas are actually enrolled into the dairy production model where they also have to um, backdoor know backdoor exit of animals. So they uh, uh, you know animals come in and oftentimes there's been numerous documented court cases of Gaushala selling animals for slaughter as well. So what happens in India is that look in India is not spared from 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 dairy economics. Okay. In, In there's no way that India is going to be uniquely spared from that. So what happens in India is that no less than an industrial scale of cow slaughter Simply goes underground. Now, it's not about one or two cows being slaughtered underground. It's about an industrial scale of it. It's a countrywide scale of it, right? And oftentimes these um, animals are trafficked into um, Kerala or West Bengal. But there are there are unauthorized, illegal slaughterhouses in every state, in every city, in every region, in every village in India. It's 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 profoundly prolific and 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 geographical in scale. So. Um, because because no one is actually spared the realities of, of of production. So what happens is just in India, we are we are the, the cow slaughter goes underground and um, and 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 we have a situation where again, as I mentioned, this, this this labor is performed by Muslims, by Dalits who are not just in a position of performing um Difficult labor, risky labor, it's actually, you know, deep, it's actually labor that places them directly at risk, because in India, this becomes a criminal activity, right? So so they're placed at risk. In India, cows are bred specifically for the dairy industry, right? If you look at any other major beef producing country, take Australia, take Brazil, for example, we have cows that are specifically bred for beef. So you have the Angus breed cows, you have the the vacuum breed cows you know you have all of these specific breeds of cows that are bred for muscle mass they are bred for specifically beef consumption there, there's there's a whole range of physical heritability characteristics that are required in a in a in a in a cow that's bred for beef in india we don't even have beef breed of cows we actually entirely breed cows for the dairy industry right so in india um Indian beef can be actually compared to chicken meat, for example, that comes from the flesh of egg-laying chickens rather than the big white broiler chickens, right? Because those broiler chickens are specifically intended for meat. And the egg-laying chickens are not, you know, their flesh is not good enough for meat. So in India, we don't actually have a beef producing um, uh, breed of cows at all. So in India, we actually breed them just for dairy. Now, that is a primary reason dairy is the primary industry for which cows are bred in india we have we have other offshoots we have um you know we have leather which is you know legal again cow leather is not legal i, I when i was doing some of my research on the leather tanning industry in india which didn't make it to the book uh, we import cow leather however from from brazil from argentina um but we are officially not really supposed to be produced using cow leather in india because we don't slaughter cows so that's the narrative uh, though, of course, what happens behind scenes is is, is otherwise. So um, bone char, right, that is used for uh, whitening sugar. So, you know, b- b- that is commonly used in the Indian um, sugar industry. Um, so there's a whole profound pharmaceuticals, for example, that use um, animal based products, cow based products. Um, so there's a whole range of sectors that do use cow based industries, but uniquely we only criminalize beef because there is an agenda there, because beef is racialized. The other products are not racialized, right? Whereas we actually conveniently don't racialize dairying, even though dairying is actually linked with a Hindu identity, whereas beef is actually not linked with a Muslim identity. Dairying is actually used in ritual Hinduism. Dairying is actually core to Hindu practices, right? So it exists in a seamless continuum because it is not so seamless in other dairy producing countries because we have a, we have different cows for beef, different cows for for dairy. In India, it is actually seamless because the cows that are bred used for beef in India are the ones that are used for um, dairying. They were bred for dairying, right? So Indian beef is actually priced very low um, as compared to beef from Argentina or Australia or the United States uh, because these are obviously sourced from cows intended for beef. So the, the beef price per unit is much higher. And yet India is a competitive beef producer. How is that? It is basically because we slaughter two to three times the number of cows that these other countries slaughter. So we, we, we make our beef profits through the sheer mass of cows that are slaughtered. And this is what actually supports and scaffolds the dairy industry. We could not have a dairy industry if we were actually looking after these animals. We could not do it. Right, So the, the production, the, the scale of slaughter is important. And um, this is not possible unless it happens in the informal economy. And the nature of the informal economy is that the state has to look away. The state has to look away. So that's generally how it has proceeded so far. And in 2014, we suddenly had an interruption of this looking away because not looking away was important to carve the idea of a Hindu state.
1: Yeah, Thank you for that. I mean, and I think um, coming back to the mention of uh, the racialization of beef, I think that puts me, uh, points me to the next question I had, which again is like one of the interesting tensions and contradictions that you bring about in your work, which is about beef festivals. And you mentioned in your work that you attended beef festivals wherein Dalit students frame beef consumption as resistance to, I quote, Untouchability, land rights, dignity of labour, food, and cultural identities—unquote—all of which are linked to the broader Hindu nationalist politics of cow production that you mm. car protection that you just mentioned. So, in that sense, how do you think we can reconcile, if at all, animal activism, which is geared towards rectifying the violence of bovine vulnerabilities, along with this politics of beef as casteist resistance?
0: That's a very, very um. Important question, and the what we need to consider here is that um, it's 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 been it's very common. For example, I have come across so many um, progressive, you know, so-called progressive. And and there would be progressive the, these these would be progressive Hindus upper caste Hindus, in virtually most realms of life, and so a lot of progressive upper caste Hindus would come and tell me, for example, that oh well I never used to even care for beef or consume beef, but I've started to consume beef to show solidarity to Dalits. There is every reason we should absolutely be showing solidarity to a group that has been brutalized in the name of um, of of cow protection in 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 in. You know, and, and especially a group that has been brutalized by by an upper caste politics. So, so this this show of solidarity, you know, that movement in India that took place around 2014 as well, not in my name, right? The not in my name movement, um, to that that you know, a lot of upper caste Hindus or Hindus more broadly were 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 using to to basically say none of this violence is in my name. I am not in agreement with any of the ways in which car vigilantes are targeting. Targeting Dalits, targeting Muslims, and so this was actually really uh, solidarity is important. What becomes problematic is the use of, is, con- is the consumption of beef, in showing solidarity. Now, from a Dalit perspective, beef is absolutely has been rendered a mode of resistance. Okay, because beef has been weaponized. You got to use the same weapon to resist. That is actually quite logical. That is not an issue. Um, that that is not that is not confusing in any way. Let me put it that way. But when an upper caste person or so called upper caste person uses beef to show solidarity what we are doing is actually reaffirming the symbolic value of beef okay beef has been conceptualized as a, as a symbol of um of of the, as a symbol that is associated with 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 the, with the dalit groups it has been associated with muslim groups i cannot tell you how many dalits and muslims have told me beef per se means nothing to us. You know, it actually means beef has no particular significance um, than chicken or mutton or any other type of meat. It has been made significant, right? It has been made significant because it has been criminalized and because it has had these sorts of stigmas and and violent politics associated with beef. But in using beef to show solidarity, we are actually potentially reaffirming Affirming the symbolic value of beef. And we also need to understand that Muslims and Dalits are not being targeted because they are most, they, because they are consuming beef. They are being targeted because they are Muslims and Dalits. Okay? Will Kimlicka has this fantastic paper in the context of Canada about how the right wing actually had no interest in animals. They were they didn't care about animals until they realized, hey, there is a this is a pathway for us to um harass. Minorities, Harris Muslims in particular. So, in the case of Canada, for example, um, the whole debate around halal slaughter versus stun slaughter came up, right? About how halal slaughter is really cruel and stun slaughter is a humane way to do it. Whereas, if you actually look at the literature on on slaughtering, um, stun slaughter means really nothing. It means absolutely nothing. But there's a particular mode that is racialized. Halal is racialized in quite a particular way. Stun slaughter is racialized in a particular way one is inhumane one is humane right um but 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 as will kimlikar talks about he says the the, the 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 canadian right for example the right the right-wing groups in canada they didn't care about animals they weren't even interested in animals they were using women women's bodies all this while to sort of marginalize and show um, muslim groups as as backward or as you know um, Uh, misogynistic or whatever and now they have just cottoned on to animals and that is exactly what the what the right in uh, India is doing as well they don't there is no central focus of care for animals because if because if animals were quite really at the center of these sorts of debates then we wouldn't be then we then you know we the discussion would be entirely different it would be focused on the dairy industry in the case of India so there is a problem here in showing solidarity by affirming animal bodies in particular ways, in the ways that the the, the right wing has actually conceptualized of them. In the same way that if we were to show solidarity based on the ways in which women's bodies were conceptualized by the Hindu right in particular ways. Okay, so what does that mean for women? Because women in being conceptualized also as cultural guardians of the state, as mothering bodies. Charu Gupta has this fantastic work on how, women in being regarded as mothers have actually been forced into into, into lives of constraint, immense constraint, right, and into backward lives even, where the patriarchy doesn't allow women to sort of step out of these preconceived molds. So, but if we were to affirm and show solidarity in ways that affirm women's status in these ways, that would be problematic. So, I think this is where we need to be really careful. And this is where I think we also have the opportunity to, to build alliances. Now, alliances don't always work. Okay. Intersectionality doesn't always work, especially when it comes to human animal intersectionality, because what generally happens is that the human interests always supersede. Okay. So, the animal rights movement does actually need to have its own momentum. But there are absolutely important convergences which we must sort of. Con- converge with. And I actually think that the animal body is a way of showing solidarity, but not in a way that affirms the politics of the Hindu right. So in, in consuming beef as a show of solidarity, we are actually reaffirming, we are actually reaffirming and strengthening the politics of the Hindu right. A more radical act would be possible to, to to deny dairy, to politicize daring, to show the problems with dairying, to, to reject dairy, for example, rather than consume beef. Reject dairy. Let's see, you know what sort of radical politics that generates, and what sort of discussion that brings into the fold. So I think solidarity is really important, of course, and but the mechanism with which we um, advance solidarity must not sell out any type of vulnerable group, whether it is a human body, whether it's a non-human animal body, right? So that I think is is what is uh, tricky. And uh can actually lead to really meaningful solidarities.
1: Thank you. I think again, like it's particularly fascinating, especially to think about and like it's someone again, like my as in I've almost like my adult education and like adulthood has spanned the period of 2014, which is when I started university. So these questions of mm-hmm. solidarity, alliances our dynamics have animated student politics that I've been involved in. And like, this is another dynamic again, like you've such an unexplored dynamic, such an overlooked dynamic that is so important because of so much of our reactions are born of ideas of guilt and ideas of privilege that we overlook some of the other hierarchies that we may be reinforcing. And like, as in harking back to something you said earlier about how we're forgetting anthropocentrism as an ideology that's still motivating so much of our reaction. So thank you so much for the answer.
0: yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank you.
1: now moving on to like for me one of the most fascinating chapters of the book was chapter six titled trafficking given my own research interests i I think your work is one of the first texts that has really offered detailed insights into the vigilante organizational setup as it exists in the contemporary period one of the more interesting observations you had there was something what you call the butcher vigilante police informer networks Mm. Could you explain what these networks are and how do they facilitate the work of cow protection vigilantes
0: um that's so when i was looking into slaughter so you know i was i started with looking at slaughter and then i went back to the dairy industry and then i came back to slaughter one of the interesting things about this segment of the production continuum is transportation because we can't openly transport cows to the slaughterhouse from dairy farms in india we're not you know because 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 narrative that we don't do it that's not you know that's that's um in illegal in most states like if you look at uh, city um states like Gujarat uh it's actually the penalty is actually life imprisonment right for for cow slaughter so the mechanics of transporting cows to the slaughterhouse achieves a particular type of political uh resonance in India just this transportation, because transportation is normative. When I when I travel around Australia, when I travel around, you know, even, even Melbourne, like, you know, there are trucks of, whether it's pigs or cows or chickens, they will just sort of normatively, um, you know, flow through the city or flow through the highways or flow through regional highways, whatever. But in India, this is actually a very political segment. So what happens here is that cows are transported underground Choose various types of underground slaughterhouses as well. Now, in since 2014, when cow vigilantism started to come into form, what happens, let me explain cow vigilantism. What happens is that these cow vigilantes that are, you know, basically blue collar, low level workers, so to speak, for various types of uh, political parties, What they will do is quite literally stand oftentimes in highways, uh, in highway checkpoints, because that's where the trucks have to um, pass through. Right. So they will quite literally place themselves in front of the trucks, halt the trucks, uh, force the drivers and their workers to get down, um, get into big fights, you know, seize the animals and the animals usually get sent to a gaushala or to an animal. Uh, sanctuary and then th- there can be major altercations between the, the the workers and the and the vigilantes, right So the, between the truckers and the vigilantes so they can be you know this can involve whole gradations of violence oftentimes uh, resulting in in violent beatings, lynchings, death, you know all of this has been in the news in India. So so what now truckers need to do, for example, is to try and avoid these sorts of routes. So they'll often try and take take back routes. Sometimes trucks will uh one truck will be stopped and then they will immediately have WhatsApp groups and they will basically WhatsApp all their other truckers, basically saying, don't come this way, because the vigilantes are here. So they have to, they have to um, you know, they'll they'll take other routes. Okay. Vigilantes also need to know when to stop trucks because once the start once the trucks stop. Taking the usual routes because they know that these people will be present there. They need to start taking back routes. They need to start taking alternative routes. And now they don't know where to go. Okay. Oftentimes these vigilantes work in the cities and then they go into I don't know, let's say, uh, regional Tamil Nadu. They don't know. They don't know the geography. Uh, they don't know where to where to wait. And they and they miss all of these trucks completely. So what happens is that there is a need for vigilantes to know where to stop the trucks. And alternatively, there is a need for butchers to know how to go, safely. To do this, from both ends, you need informers. Now, where do informers come from? Informers usually come from within of the other side. Okay, so, so butchers will basically need, need somebody, need an informer, need an insider from the vigilante network to basically say, uh, we're here, just avoid, right? And so they're they usually paid informers. And the vigilantes in turn also have informers who are oftentimes typically within the butchering community itself. So the butchering, the, so, so, well, so some of the butchers will inform on their own communities and basically say, um, you know, X is going this way or Bly is going this way or this many trucks are going this way or this many animals have just been loaded into this truck. If you go and wait at such and such point, uh, you'll be able to stop them. OK, so informers are really important. You can't not have informers uh, in, first of all, safely going to the slaughterhouses or alternatively in trying to stop stop the trucks and basically enact the performance of protecting the Hindu state because the cow body is the Hindu state. Right. So this network is really important. And the police is informed. The, po- the police will play both sides. The police will uh Inform on the vigilantes, uh, help the vigilantes. The police will equally help the butchers. So this this is really really important. So so what this does is it's not so straightforwardly black or white or in terms of binaries that there's vigilantes on the one side and the, and the and the butchers on the other side. Because oftentimes they actually have to work together. They may not want to work together. They may not even necessarily like each other. But it's a question of survival for the butchers. Oftentimes it is a question of protection because I'm a butcher. I'm going to inform on my neighbors and that will hopefully at least keep my family safe. Okay. Survival life in any form wants to live, no matter what means, whether it is human or animal, we want to live. So if it's, if the stakes for me are that I betray uh, three of my neighbors, but then my, my family is, uh, is guaranteed safety, I'll do it. Right. So that's the, that's oftentimes the, um, the stakes for the butchers. Sometimes the payoff also is that, look, let me do my butchering quietly, don't stop me, but in return I'll tell you, I'll give you a whole pile of information. So there is that as well, there's survival of the business, there's survival of the livelihood, Uh, there is ways to do it, I need to do it, you know I need to do it, just let me do it, let's be quiet about this, but here is who you can have. Okay, and the vigilantes as well will oftentimes make money from the butchers because this is, you know, the thing about the vigilantes is oftentimes they are doing it also for survival and livelihood. They are unemployed. We have a huge range of, um, you know, the, the surplus labor, so to speak. Right. Marxist surplus labor. This surplus labor needs to be kept unemployed in some way precisely to be able to do this kind of work, this kind of political work. This is really dirty labor. Uh, not just dirty in terms of ethics, but e- but even for the vigilantes, the risks involved in you know physically getting into altercations. Um, you know, butchers often come armed with knives and 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 other weapons because you know first of all for their own safety, but that's also tools of their trade quite literally. So it's quite literally risky labor for the vigilantes as well, which I think is also underappreciated because that is the reality. If you look at the low-level workers of any type of terrorist activity. If you look at their motivations, it's not necessarily the the carving of the Hindu state. That's not what they are. They are more interested in just um, finding a way to live as well. Right. And that is also something that is being exploited. So they will oftentimes take bribes from the butchers and say, you give me a bribe and I will tell you, I will inform you of what routes are safe, where we are is not safe. So they work in this way. Right. So this sort of butcher, police, Uh, vigilante network operates in really complex ways at the transport segment of the daily production economy because it is not straightforward. And this is where nation is made, this is where nation is unmade, but this is also where um, livelihoods are made. And and you can also see the, the very sort of complex interlinks between livelihoods and nationalism itself. Okay, it's not, I will perform nationalistic labor, but that is often for my livelihood rather than um a, a sentiment if you if you see the difference
1: thank you i'm really struck by like the complexity of the network that you outlined particularly because in my own work on like uh, interfaith couples and love jihad cases in up we've looked yeah. at the role of informers who sit in courts where either they would fa- force interfaith couples to take out public notices of their marriage and the vigil- yes <laughs> networks where they would scan these newspapers or they would ask couples to come later for marriage registration and in that time these court informers would then quickly through their whatsapp group uh, tell the (laughs) vigilantes there's this couple coming for marriage registration you come then the couple uh, the vigilantes would then tell the police that this is going to happen and we're going to beat them up or we're going to coerce them and the police is again like you said playing both sides if at all or like just giving impunity to the vigilantes i'm just struck by the parallels between these cases
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's also, and even the police, if you look at the police that is operating in the in the highway, okay, the police constable who's quite literally patrolling the highway, and the police constable that is, you know, circling, circling the butcher area, for example. Now, these are not, these are not powerful police officers. These are not from the Indian police service. Okay, these, these individuals have virtually no power themselves. The police constable in India is actually classified as a semi-skilled laborer. Which is which is just mind-boggling if you think about it. Um, they have really low salaries. They also need to sort of you know get into uh, receiving and taking bribes. Um, so there is there is there is there is stakes here. There is fully livelihood stakes here for for all of these three groups, right? So the the, the police is there is it, there's stakes in, in 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 being part of the butcher network equally as part of as being part of the um, um, the the RSS network or any other sort of political party network. I have so often they will tell me about if I it, it is so interesting if I wanted to talk to a butcher and he would tell me all this and I would I would just say something out and i am like, oh, my God, I really need to talk to these people. And he's like, oh, yeah, I'll put you onto them because, you know, they talk to each other. Right. The butchers and the vigilantes talk to each other. So oftentimes my source of a vigilante interview would come from a butcher or the other way around because they talk to each other. Yeah, and, nice. and and they work with each other.
1: <laughs> yeah. Anyhow, uh, now, moving on, like the conclusion to your book is titled "Envisioning Post Dairy Futures." Could you explain what post dairy futures can look like, and if there's a potential for such futures in a country like India?
0: So, with post dairying, um, in some ways, I I sort of go back to India's dairying roots itself, which was formulated in the 1950s under Koreans' leadership. Um, and, you know, because India is not was not really a dairy-consuming culture, per se, like there's very few states or cultures in India where, as, as a culture, as a, as a mode of consumption, as a, as a separate from ritual use, um, India was not really a dairy-consuming country, per se, um, though it was, you know, as with any type of product, you you formulate it, you sell it, you make it attractive, and suddenly it becomes a thing that we need to buy. And, and we can say that about virtually any type of product. And... Kurian's memoir talks at length about how strategically dairying was 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 sort of peddled as this product as a way of produce as a way of basically generating farmers' livelihoods. His focus was always to generate farmers' livelihoods. And my idea of coming to a post-dairy futures here is to, obviously, the, I think one of the first links is, is to focus on, you know, if, if we are to take... Um, animal rights seriously, but I'm not talking about w- w- what, w- why should we do it? Okay, because we, we can go on with business as usual and not doing it, right? We, we can continue. But I think this is where we actually get confronted with our own sort of double pink and with our own sort of hypocrisy, really, right? Because suffering in any form is one of the main motivations when we advocate for any type of human, human justice, Okay, whether it is whether it comes to ability, whether it comes to diverse gender identities, whether it comes to minorities, majorities, whatever it is, suffering is the primary propellant. And Jeremy Bentham, one of the you know animal philosophers, he said this at you know in his foundational text. It's actually a footnote in his in his text, but he basically says the thing with animals, and I'm paraphrasing quite poorly here. It is not the question is not whether can they speak. Question is not can they reason, but the question is can they suffer. Okay, if we are willing to disregard suffering in and of itself, just because it is it is located in a non-human body then I think it really brings into question about what will we get away with if we could, even in the case of humans, right? Because in the case of humans, we have particular ways of vocalizing and resisting that we recognize, right? We, especially in the progressive space, it becomes really impossible to sort of uh, work on any type of uh, oppression without being called out. And, and, and we should be, we absolutely should be. So, but it, it brings into question about what we can get away with, because if we are so blatantly getting away with violence, inflicting violence and perpetuating violence on the non-human animal body, then if we could get away with it, why wouldn't we in the human realm as well? So I think it really brings into question um, because what human rights is about is fundamentally protecting them, protecting vulnerable people, isn't it? It's about protecting vulnerable people. It's protecting them against uh, us using... Uh, unchecked power, our power over them. Okay, so why shouldn't we be checked in using our power over animal bodies as well? Because we are also animals. We should be able to forge that as a, some type of connective tissue in terms of having empathy. So I think that really brings that into question. So I, it seems to me that we really need to be actually politicizing animal-based products given that they arise out of so much suffering. Um, there is a, There is the environmental case For veganism, for example. But I didn't want and I did do do mention that, but only fleetingly, because I don't want to make an environmental case for social justice. I think social justice should 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 make a case for itself, whether or not there is an environmental reason for it. We don't say, oh, we should be anti-racist because, you know, it's good for the environment. We should be anti-racist because we should be anti-racist. We should be um, non-sexist because we should be non-sexist. Whether or not it's good for the environment, that's not even that's not even a factor in when we when we come to these sorts of politics. So that was that was for me quite central in in you know our constitution talks about having compassion for animals. Well, what does that actually really mean if it's a fundamental duty? Um, and and but much more broadly, what does what 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 where does our human obligation lie? Because we 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 think about our obligation. To a whole spectrum of identity groups, we are aware of it. What, what, what about our obligation to, to animals? Um, and in, and in, and specifically considering, is post dairy futures relevant for India? I don't think it is unique. I don't think this question is necessarily unique to India. The question, probably more, is, is post dairy futures something that humans will take up no matter where they are, right? Um, Will we do it? Will we, will we do it? Um, Because virtually every country, every culture is invested in dairy consumption in some form as a cultural, as a cultural history. um, You know, Katie Gillespie's book, The Cow with the Attack 1389 uh, talks about how dairy, you know, mac and cheese, milk, cookies, whatever, they're all so entangled with the American childhood imagination. It's so entangled with, with the making of the American nation itself, you know, um, you know, milk, for example, is something that the alt-right in America mobilizes as something that separates the Aryan races from the non-Aryan races. So I think all cultures and all countries basically have stakes in dairy consumption. So not necessarily uniquely relevant to India, but I think much more globally, but much more broadly um, to, to human species as such. And, you um, and here is where we, there's so many different ways. And this is where, you know, the, the, the confusion sort of comes up about how can we sort of start mobilizing and institutionalizing non-dairy form modes of consumption. And, and, and I don't necessarily just think that it's a question of product replacement. Or let's say you take vegan cheese and, you know, replace uh, dairy cheese with vegan cheese. I actually think we need to step back into our food production systems itself. Like even agricultural food production systems is so flawed globally. Right. Like there is so many problems with the way that we, you know, the Green Revolution ushered in this sort of era of really problematic farming practices, Um, you know, genetically altered modes of farming practices. We really need to go back to indigenous modes of uh, even agricultural farming, you know, and I think there's a movement in India, which is kind of a bit of an elite movement that looks at, you know, indigenous pulses, indigenous millets as more nutritional and, you know, um, more in, in line with our culture. So there's a little bit of a movement, but I think it needs to sort of really be institutionalized much more specifically in terms of food security. And, um, but but even if we were to think of product replacement, there is so much scope. Like, for example, if you look at the cashew industry and, the ca- and cashew is oftentimes used as a um, alternative, a vegan alternative, right? So you have cashew-based milk and cashew-based cheeses. If you look at the cashew industry in India, it is profusely, scarred and marred with human rights abuses, child rights abuses, okay, they use children to peel the cashew nuts, you know, this this, this is documented um, um, human rights abuse when, you know, they get b- b- burns from cashew peeling, uh, because the acid from the cashew peels um, really harms, you know, the, the, the unprotected uh, workers, right, there is so much scope here to clean up these sorts of industries, to bring the focus. So our advocacy doesn't just end with saying, go vegan. It doesn't just end with with animal rights. It's sort of this constant recognition of, of the stakes across the board. Basically, I think, I'm, you know, what I'm personally guided by is sell out nobody. Like, don't, you know, let's not advocate any type of politics that's going to sell out anyone. So if you're going to advocate for, you know, product replacement lens. Let's look at the cashew and peanut industries, which are so problematic and, and really look at giving farmers uh, livelihoods and, and, and that are sustainable. But this is also going to potentially help dairy farmers if you really clean up the, the farming industry, because dairying in India, as I said, was not born out of any other reason, but, but to sustain provide sustainable livelihoods. You move this somewhere else you move the idea of sustainable livelihood somewhere else, you actually can employ the very same strategies that Berghese Korean did for the white revolution, asking for subsidies, lobbying hard for subsidies, putting farmer first, thinking constantly, what does it mean to put the farmer first in this particular sector? What does it, what does it need, okay? So he's, he, he went across the board in trying to strengthen dairy farmers, starting from cutting import subsidies on foreign dairy, um, within India, providing massive um, subsidies, but also unconditionally taking milk from farmers. So, you know, India actually has a milk glut at the moment. The reason why milk farming is still attractive is because the state is obliged to buy milk through the milk cooperatives, whether or not it needs milk. India has a milk glut. Virtually every country has a milk glut. So what we normally do is just basically keep dehydrating the milk and storing it as milk powder because it's just too much milk. Right. So but 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 farmers will will do it because, you know, it's 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 a guaranteed source of income. So we can do this in other 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 means and ways of um, of, of farming. And we should be doing this and we should actually be looking to strengthen farmers across these other sorts of farming sectors. You know, we, we there's a high rate of suicides in farmer suicides in India. so going post dairying is not just relevant for cows or for other animals used in dairying um in fact india has just legalized camel milk so i think there is a lot at stake for for animal rights in in and there is a lot at stake for the, the state of the environment in india Uh, But there's a lot at stake much beyond that. So we actually need to have a very expansive view of what the stakes are. It's not narrow. It's not a question of just, you know, us giving up. It's a question of, of a much expanded potential and possibility for very radical flourishing futures
1: across the board. Thank you. That's such an important message. Anyway, um, I've taken up a lot of your time, but I wanted to end by asking you that throughout the book you mentioned the challenging personal nature of studying and observing the remarkably normalized violence of the dairy industry and its blatant obfuscation in public imagination. How did you navigate these experiences personally, and what advice do you have for researchers and other graduate students working in similar circumstances?
0: I actually um, just wrote a paper. It's it's under under uh, consideration at the moment. After, after writing the the cow book, uh, one of the first questions that I often get asked is, how did you do it? Like, you know, the methodological scale of it, the ethnographical scale of it, but also just the act of witnessing. Um, it's my research in many ways, and I talk about this in, this in this paper that I've just written, my ethnographic approach in many ways was very much at odds with traditional ethnography, which is rootedness in one space you sort of stay in the one space, you sort of bond, um, form deep roots in the one space, form form bonds with the community, and, and, and do that. That was an option for me as well. I could have just situated myself in any part of India, for example. I could have done it in Delhi, I could have done it in Tamil Nadu, or I could have done it in Gujarat, you know, anywhere. And the fundamental message of the book in terms of what daring means for the animals would not have changed. But they were various other things that i had to think about one was these are actually spaces of violence and in spaces of violence we really need to formulate ethnography that is that is attuned to it right um you know it's it's not it's not it's it's quite risky sometimes to talk to vigilantes in one space and try and form sustained relationships and then also become marked in some ways it is actually easier to interview many similar types of, inter- of 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 people but also across many similar sites. So one of the ways that I did this was to basically go to a number of dairy farms and, instead of just the one farm, go to a number of slaughterhouses instead of just the one, go, go and speak to a number of vigilantes across the country instead of just one uh, community in a particular space. So I kept moving. I call this kind of the Rolling Stones multi-species ethnography and I kept moving. The other motivation here which would have really disrupted my research is uh, potentially forming bonds with the animals themselves, right? Because if I was to stay in a dairy farm and if I was to look at these specific individuals and and form my own relations, because we do form relations with the animals. Radhika Govindrajan's book does this beautiful job of of reflecting on how human animal intimate relationships are formed and made and and the stakes in in these relationships. And I thought if I were to stay and form these relationships, my political orientation changes in some ways in trying to work for these animals, trying to liberate these animals. I could get these animals out, put them into sanctuaries. Uh, you know, my life turns into sustained care and advocacy for these animals, which is absolutely one way of doing it. Um, but what does that mean? But there would have been a particular loss in in, in canvassing the scale of of uh, of. Of dairy production, the scale of nationalism, um, the scale of the butcher vigilante networks, which are not just in localized, but they are actually countrywide. They're countrywide networks, right? These, these, these. That's the thing about these networks. They're countrywide, and they are. They are not just uh, political networks, they're actually production networks as well, because they are an important part of, of the dairy production continuum. And you get to see things in a rolling stone sort of approach, which is um, which which is difficult to see in the one space, like, you know, looking at animals, we were driving through um, the guntur vijayawada Highway, uh, for example, and there was literally a river of cows, rivers, river, like it's a mass seasonal migration of animals, but they were being basically walked on foot, to, towards, you know, markets and towards slaughterhouses. Um, and you can see them on open fields being tied. right? They, they, they're just openly visible, but you need to keep moving in order to see these sorts of, um, witness these sorts of events. So my approach basically ethnographically was to move in sites of violence. I think there's a really strong case uh, for doing that but in moving through as rapidly as i did i think it is important to go to multiple similar sites you know because it is difficult to make a sustained case based on brief visits to one site if you're going to keep rolling one type of site so i think the the trick here in order to sort of still maintain the sustained nature of ethnography because ethnography is generally a sustained type of method and you sort of spend sustained amounts of time you're still spending sustained amounts sustained amounts of time but across multiple similar sites so I think that was one of my ways of doing it and central to that was to try and not form too many attachments to animals because that would have disrupted what I was trying to do in the in the context of of field work and I and I and there is a space for for sustained contact with animals. And, you know, when I came back to Melbourne, I really wanted to do something, you know, beyond just donating to animal groups or what was what was I doing for the animals? And we started to rescue chickens. So we have uh, rescued chickens in our backyard who come from, who are you know, liberated from egg farms in various um, factories from Melbourne. And that kind of exposed me to another type of feminized protein, which is not milk, but, you know, eggs. Um, so I haven't written that much about it yet. I, I, I just got a paper out on on chickens and, you know, the, the feminist politics of eggs. Um, but these are the ways in which I think I'm trying to show some accountability to the research and to the various sort of vulnerable bodies enmeshed in these research spaces. And 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 it's never going to be a perfect mechanism of doing it. And there is always regret. There is always guilt, I think. Animal ethnographers, but ethnographers more generally of violence, always talk about the guilt because one of the things that you're doing is you're constantly walking away. And it becomes very difficult to sustain that as a human being, you know, because you have the freedom to move, you have the freedom to leave. And the the, the sense that you're extracting becomes even more visceral because I think ethnographers and anthropologists always have to reckon with this idea that that, that research can become extractive. You know because you get to leave but you the, the idea that you get to leave is even more visceral when you're located in a site of violence because you get to leave and you're you are safe and that's a that's a privilege of the ethnographer so these kind of accountabilities are really um are, 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 an, are an ongoing sort of work in progress in, in constantly trying to think about this reflect about this and 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 to you know frame most ethical responses as much as possible that you can in that moment
1: thank you for that response i think that's going to i think that personally resonated a lot and i think it's going to resonate a lot with other researchers and graduate students working in this field thank you
0: oh i'm so relieved to know that thank you Yash.
1: <laughs> it's nice speaking to you
0: thank you so much again for having me i really enjoyed this conversation
1: thanks